If you would, if you got your Bibles, you can open up. We're going to be in James chapter 1 tonight. James chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 2 to 4. James 1, 2 to 4. Let me pray for us, and then um, we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you this evening that you have provided us a firm foundation on which we can stand. Lord, we pray tonight that as we dive into this familiar text that we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy in the midst of the storms of life. Lord, I pray that you would use this lowly mouth of yours to proclaim your glory and your comfort that is found only through your son, Jesus Christ. And to you be the glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. In the book Unbroken, Laura Hillenbrand details the incredible story of how Louis Zamperini faced and overcame numerous trials over the course of his life. Louis was born to Italian immigrant parents in 1917 in New York, and soon thereafterwards, the family moved out to California. And as a kid, Louis found out that he had the talent for long-distance running. At the age of 17, he set the national high school record for the mile with a time of 4 minutes and 21.2 seconds. That record would stand for 20 years before it was broken. He was so good that his track skills got him a scholarship to the University of Southern California. And eventually he went on to qualify for the 1936 Berlin Olympics where he would finish 8th in the 5,000 meter race. When he got back home, he continued his training for the 1940 Olympic Games, and he kept setting records along the way, this time at USC. His record there, a record-breaking mile of 4 minutes and 18 seconds, or 8 seconds, would stand for 15 years. I can't even imagine. I don't even think I could run a quarter of a mile in 4 minutes and 8 seconds, just to show you how in shape I am. But things would drastically change for Louis as the start of World War II came in 1939. The 1940 Olympics would be canceled, and three years later, Louis would enlist in the Army Air Corps. In 19, or May of 1943, Louis Zamperini and his crew went out on a flight mission in search of comrades who had went down in the Pacific Ocean. But while they were searching over the ocean, his, his plane suffered mechanical failure and also crashed into the ocean. Only Zamperini and two of his other crewmates survived the crash. He would be stranded on a raft for a total of 47 days where he endured hot, hot weather, circling sharks. The only food that he had were the birds that landed on their raft and the only water that he had came from collecting rainwater. And he also saw one of his two friends die while at sea. If that wasn't enough, when they finally were found, they were found by the Japanese. And then he was transferred to a prisoner of war camp where he would be physically and psychologically abused by one sergeant in particular named the Bird. 
Even when he was moved from one camp to another, it always seemed like the bird followed, and then the physical and psychological abuse would continue. His captivity would last for more than two years, and even the U.S. military pronounced him officially dead because they did not know where he was. He was released after the war ended in 1945 and returned home to the U.S., but his troubles didn't end there. Over the course of the next four years, the trauma that he experienced from war would be especially rough on him and his family, particularly his wife. He would be consumed with alcoholism. His addiction there almost ended his marriage. And it wasn't until 1949 that he just so happened to go to a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles where he would hear the gospel and be converted. From that point on, he would spend the rest of his life working with troubled youth, young boys in particular, and would even traveled back to Japan in 1950 to personally forgive his tormentors. In a separate book that was completed just two days before his death, Louis Zamperini, reflecting back on his life, penned these words. He said, the greatest lesson of my life is perseverance. Never give up. It's like my brother said, is it one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? You see, trials and adversity in life are nothing new in a fallen world, especially for God's people. But the way that we view our trials and respond to them can make all the difference. As Zamperini learned and as James will tell us tonight in our text, persevering through affliction from trials is worth an eternity of glory. Before we dive into our text, though, I think it is helpful for us to get a little bit of a background about who our author is and the circumstances surrounding why he is writing this letter and a little bit about his audience. Obviously, the author is James, but this is James, who is the brother of Jesus. We find that in Matthew 13, 55. And what do we know about Jesus' family? Essentially, what we know is that they thought he was crazy. Basically, Jesus to them was that one family member that we're embarrassed to be in public with, right? How do we know that? Well, Mark 3.21, it tells us that when his family heard that a mass crowd was gathering around him, they were following him, they tried to seize him and say that he was out of his mind, And we can also say that James was probably a part of this as well because John chapter 7 and verse 5, it tells us that for even his brothers did not believe him. James was in the same house. He ate at the same table. He slept in the same room as the Son of God, and he had no idea. He completely missed on his identity. But we do know that things change drastically after the resurrection. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, when he is detailing who it is that Jesus appears to after his resurrection. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some 
have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. James was radically changed after seeing his resurrected brother, the Messiah, standing in front of him. James would go on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, and with this knowledge, it helps us to understand why James opens his letter by describing himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, hi, I'm James, I am Jesus' brother, but rather, no, I am a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was writing to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed all over the Mediterranean at this time. And these Jewish Christians are facing some extreme harsh conditions. You see, they were um, highly persecuted. They were going through extreme poverty, poverty. And as a result, it led to fighting amongst themselves. Some giving themselves over to worldly lifestyles and some who were, quote, double-minded, end quote, as James would call them, trying to go back and forth between God and the world. And so it's with this knowledge that James begins his letter in almost a stunning fashion. And so let's look at verses 2 to 4. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have It's perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the first thing we see from this passage is that trials are certain. Trials are certain. Now, we don't really kind of know what trials that James is specifically talking about here, although we know kind of what the Jewish Christians were facing in persecution and poverty. But scholars seem to think that he leaves this vague for a reason, just as kind of an all-encompassing of all kinds of different trials that are really out of our control. But James's audience may also have thought, thank you for stating the obvious. We know that. We are going through the midst of trials right now. You and I may be thinking the same thing, but it is, it's what he says before that phrase, when you face various trials that really should shock us. To a point where it might even be a little bit offensive. So if you're like me and you've read this verse numerous times, you've clung to its encouragement, its comforting words that follow, but maybe you've glossed over the first part. He tells them to count it all joy, my brothers. I don't know about you, but when I face trials, and particularly when thinking back over the course of these past 16 to 18 months with everything that's going on, my response is not naturally that of radiating joy, okay? I am more prone to respond with anxiety, worry, frustration. Man, the list could go on and on and on and on. I'd venture to say that for most of us, our natural response when facing trials is not immediate joy, but rather something else that seems more natural to us. But these types of responses ultimately are not healthy ones because it leaves us vulnerable to Satan's age-old tactic of getting us to think, getting us to believe that somehow God is holding out on us, that he is not 
worthy to be trusted with what we are going through. But that is certainly not the case at all. And James tells us, and actually this is a command, to consider it a joy to face various trials. Now it's here that I think we need to pause before we get into what that actually means and kind of address what it is that he's not saying here, right? So we live in a broken, fallen world. We've established that that's longing to be restored. And let's be honest, no one enjoys the painful process of going through storms of life, right? They don't necessarily bring smiles to our faces. So he's not saying that suffering is good. He's also not intending his readers and encouraging them just to flippantly encourage one another with shallow words. This is not merely a, hey, hey, let's hang in there, or you got this, sending positive vibes your way kind of deal, right? Think about how it played out in John chapter 11 when Lazarus died. Mary and Martha are devastated, and they're waiting on Jesus to arrive. They are grieving tremendously. And how does Jesus respond when he arrives? It's not with, hey, consider this a joy that your brother died. There's a purpose here. Although there was, Jesus didn't say that. What does the text tell us? He says he wept. He wept with them and he comforted them. So I think it's important to establish what James is not telling us here. But rather what James is trying to get us to view, he's trying to get us to see our trials in a Romans 8.28 kind of way. Not everything that happens in life is good. But when we understand that every trial that we face is under the sovereign hand of God, then it helps us to confidently say that all things work together for the good of those that love God. For those who are called according to his purpose, even in the midst of pain, tears, and sorrow. James wants us to pull back and to see the bigger picture here. There is so much more here when he says, count it all joy than just our happiness. For us, happiness tends to rise and fall on temporary things, okay? So I love food. I love to eat. It makes me happy until I eat too much, right? And then it's, I don't want any part of that, right? So our, we tend to think of happiness in material things, things that make us temporarily happy. But rather, joy is a choice despite my situation or circumstance. It is a sense of well-being that may at the same time embrace the sorrow, embrace the tears, the anger, or the pain. It's not denying those emotions. It's not denying those feelings that we have in the midst of trials, but rather it's choosing to take delight in God's goodness, both when life is going well and even when it is seemingly crumbling all around us. When James tells us to stop and consider it a joy to face trials, it is God himself and his glorious purposes that he wants us to stop and consider. It doesn't mean that we won't hurt. 
that we won't be tempted to respond with worry, panic, cry, but it does mean that we can echo the words of Job during his pain, blessed be the name of the Lord. I want us to notice something else, particularly about this verse, verse 2. He also tells us that we have the gift of one another. He is writing to the churches, to the brothers and the sisters. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. We know that, but it is good to be reminded of that. And it's important to keep in mind as we think about the implications of this command. We're called to rejoice with one another. But on the flip side, we're also called to watch out for one another. We are called to bear one another's burdens. If we think about our past experiences with pain, with grief, with trials, a lot of times we think about our church family that is involved, involved with those painful memories that helped us get through. But we should also heed a warning here from this letter about what can happen when we respond with trials the way our flesh wants to, the way that we naturally want to in a corporate manner, right? So there's division that's among these churches, these house churches that James is writing to. This group is a hot mess, right? If you look through these five, these five chapters, he's going to address a whole host of things, okay? One of the greatest tragedies is the success that Satan, Satan has at dividing the body of believers when trials hit. Because of the way that we are tempted to respond naturally. Friends, may we consider it a joy to face trials together and not let it become an opportunity to quarrel or to waver in thought or deed from the glorious purposes that God has for his body in difficult times. So first we see that trials are certain, but also we also see that trials produce enduring faith. Trials produce an enduring faith. Verses 3 and 4a. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. So not only does James want us to stop, stop and consider God and the future blessings that come from trials, but he also wants us to embrace trials with joy because of what they can produce. So essentially, trials are tests. They're tests. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like tests, specifically when it comes to tests of endurance, okay? One of the most painful memories that I have for my life is from college baseball and the conditioning tests that we had to complete when we returned to campus every August, okay? In high school baseball, I wasn't really pushed a whole lot. We weren't that good, so it was just kind of show up, let's play ball. I didn't really know how to work out. I didn't really know how to get ready for a season. And so when I received the summer workout program right before I got there, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I show up in August before my freshman year, and after our first team meeting, I realized there's a running test I have to pass. 
And so we show up to the field uh, on, our, on that particular day that we're scheduled, and we go to the right field foul pole, and our test was we had to run directly across the field, touch the left field pole, and then come all the way back in 60 seconds. We got a minute and 20 second break in between, and we had to do that eight times. If you passed, you were good. You got to practice. If you failed, then you had to come back the next day, try it again. If you failed, you had to come back the next day. Essentially, you just had to keep retaking this test over and over and over until you passed. If that wasn't fun enough, my sophomore year, it got even better. We started at home plate, had to go to the right field pole, left field pole, back to home, and a minute 20 seconds, two-minute break in between, and had to complete that six times. My body gave out. I was done after that. But this is not what James is getting at. This is not a pass-fail kind of test, and that was certainly not a joy of a trial to go through. Thankfully, I don't have to do those anymore. So our tendency is to view tests in a negative fashion, or at least I do. But James wants us to see tests of faith as something positive. He's not saying that these are tests to prove whether or not you have faith, but rather it's a test that is meant to grow faith. The Greek word here for test is doikomion. It's an interesting word. It's a rare Greek word that's only used in three other places in Scripture. One is in 1 Peter 6 and 7, or chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Peter is using the word to, to describe faith as genuine. The other two places are in the Old Testament. One is in Psalm 11, verse 7, and the other is in Proverbs 27, 21. James is using this word more like Psalms and Proverbs. There, it's used to describe the refining process that gold and silver go through to become just that, gold and silver. So what does that mean for our faith? It means that the trials of life are God's way of purifying a faith that already exists. He's removing the impurities. Just as muscles grow and become stronger through the pressure and resistance of weight, such is our faith when it faces hardships. And then it produces steadfastness, endurance. In other words, God is teaching us how to persevere. Malcolm Muggeridge, love that name by the way, was an English journalist and known for his satirical writings. He was a spy for England during the Second World War. And later on in his life, after he became converted, was very outspoken against the sexual revolution and the culture, uh, really standing up for the faith in the public sphere. He would write these words on the subject of, of persevering uh, and facing trials. He said, quote, Contrary to what might be expected... I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced 
and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. That's a hard pill to swallow for the live your best life now crowd. We live in a world of instant gratification. If you want it, you can go get it now. We don't have to wait on it. Somehow we figured out, even when it comes to physical fitness and weight loss, that we can cut corners and still get results. But that's not the case here. And sadly, when it comes to faith, we are tempted to want it to be the same way. We want the purification without the pain and the pressure. But the Lord tells us here, James reminds us here, that results take time. We must be patient. A good, a good example of that is in Hebrews chapter 11, where you have all the heroes of the faith. The writer of Hebrews goes through all of them. He's, man, he's detailing their lives all throughout the Old Testament. He's reminding them, by faith, by faith, by faith, they did this, they accomplished that, they endured this. Yet each one of them, in verse 39, chapter 11, verse 39, listen to these words. It says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. I can't imagine the kind of hardships that you kind of have to go through being in the Old Testament, clinging to God's word about the Messiah is coming. He's coming. It's going to happen. And these guys never see it. But yet the Lord in his goodness and in his graciousness allows each one of them to get a little bit of a glimpse. Like this morning in, in teaching the third through fifth grade class, we um, were talking about Moses uh, and the Israelites. They had approached the promised land and then had to wait 40 years before they could enter. Moses is getting near the end of his life uh, before Joshua takes over. And what does the Lord allow him to do? He allows him to see the promised land before he dies. He allows him to get a glimpse of what he had promised Israel. He allowed each one of them to get a glimpse that, yes, it's coming. You have to take my word for it. Then in chapter 12, he flips to this side of the cross, specifically in verse 2, and he uses Jesus as our encouragement to follow. Listen to these words, verse 2. He says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, there's our word, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, when we take our eyes off of this world and we fix our gaze on him, then trials will be a joy to you and to me because we will learn how to know, love, and trust him like we never have before. So first we see that trials are certain. Second, we see that trials produce an enduring faith. And then lastly, we see that trials remind us of the ultimate goal. Last part of verse 4. He says that you may, here's the result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So what's the goal? To have a more complete, mature, deepened faith. Paul puts it another way in Romans chapter 5, specifically verses 3 to 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As I read those words, I was reminded of one of my favorite uh, Brianisms um, that he said that I have thoroughly enjoyed. He said one time, hope that does not disappoint must have a future. Hope that does not disappoint must have a future. That's part of what James is trying to get us to see here, right? A faith that endures through trials. He's trying to get us, pull us back to see the bigger picture. See, uh, get us to look ahead to that future hope. And buddy, it doesn't disappoint. So what does it mean to actually have a mature, complete, and a deepened faith? What does that look like? Just some thoughts here. First, it, it means that our weaknesses and our imperfections are being removed from our character. I picture a, a sculptor with a hammer and a chisel slowly working away at a masterpiece. The process takes time, chiseling away the imperfections, slowly turning it into that masterpiece. It means that we are gaining victory over old sins and the old self as we pass through trials of various kinds. We saw that in great detail when we went through Ephesians, specifically chapter 4, 17 to 32, where it goes, off, goes through the put off, put on. It is having the ability to learn from pe previous experiences and recognize a mistake before we make it again. We must be students of ourselves, of our actions, of our thoughts, of our of our words, learning when we are tempted, how we are tempted, how we failed, and then adjusting accordingly. It's like a good coach making in-game adjustments. How are we being exploited and what am I going to do to change that? It means that we are growing in many areas of life. God does not want cheap substitutes. He wants thoroughly developed Christians who reflect Him. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. If you were at VBS like three years ago, that song is now stuck in your head. It doesn't mean that we will attain sinless perfection in this life, but rather we are mirroring Christ more and more every day. 1 Timothy 4, 7b through 8. Train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, 
as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It means that we are becoming people who are fully committed to obeying God's commands. Later on in this chapter, in verse 22, James is going to say, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest you deceive yourself. It describes a contentment that comes from knowing God has what we need when we need it. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Lastly, and as stated a few minutes ago, it's a faith that is developed over time. Each year the farmer must go out. He must prep the field. He must plant the seed and water it. And then what does he do? He waits until harvest is ready. Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Some translations will say patience. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Think about this as we close. One day, you and I are going to stand before God. Ultimately, God's goal from the day that you are converted until judgment day is to prepare you and I for that day. If our goal is to know God and to be conformed into his likeness, then we can take joy in trials because we know that no matter how tough they may get, they are moving us towards our goal. Testing comes all throughout life. Failure is going to come along the way. But James fully expected those believers, and he fully expects that you and I will respond with trials with joy because he understood that that process is producing a deeper, a more certain faith that one day is going to carry us across that finish line to hear those sweet words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us even in our deepest and darkest valleys. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is with us even in those dark times. And Lord, I pray that even now as we go through trials that we are facing, maybe individually, as a body, as a country, as a nation, and this world, Lord, I pray that we would echo these words that we cherish so dearly, that we would consider it a joy to face what we are facing because we know ultimately you are purifying our faith. You are purifying your bride. And you are preparing us for the day where we are made perfected. Lord, I thank you for these encouraging words that you have given to us this evening. May we fix our eyes upon you tonight. And may you go with us as we depart from here.
And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.